six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at two thirteen. Welcome, everybody. It is 10 o'clock on Saturday. It is time for the Science Nights. Everybody's here today. I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Sean Graham, Dr. Anurban Bhattacharji, and Dr. Thomas Schiller. Everybody's here. They are crusading your airwaves today. And uh, today's subject, all about snakes. Take it away, guys. Thanks a lot, Conley. Yeah, today we're going to talk about snakes. Uh, turns out my area of expertise is, is actually snakes. This is uh, Sean Graham talking. And today I thought we'd, we'd kind of clear the air and talk about the world's deadliest snakes. So you hear a lot about this, right? If, you, if you're a, a connoisseur of nature shows, if you watch a lot of Animal Planet, watch, watch a lot of Discovery Channel, there's all kinds of documentaries out there about the world's 10 deadliest snakes. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about what is actually a deadly snake, what isn't. And, you know, I'll just throw it out there to you guys. Um, and I hate doing, like, this is not your area of expertise, but what do you think, what, what have you heard that the deadliest snake is? Um, the Death Adder? Fertilance. Death adder, fertilance, those are those are dangerous. What about you, Anurban? Um I guess it would be sea, sea snakes. Sea snakes, yeah, yeah, they've got really potent venom. Yeah. Um uh, and like uh, well, there's a couple of nature shows out there specifically that really uh, the ones that really bother me. It's like, you know, well, part of this is God bless them, it's Steve Irwin, right? Right, the most deadly snakes in the world, they're all in Australia. And that's not true, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to we're kind of going to figure out what we're talking about. We're going to make sure that we define what we mean when we say deadly, and we're gonna we're gonna really get into this because uh, this may surprise a lot of listeners out there. The deadliest snakes in the world. I'd be very surprised if you've ever heard of them, and you really should hear about these snakes because medically speaking, they're very very important snakes. They kill a lot of people every year. Uh, they're exceedingly dangerous, and yet I have never seen, and, and this is true to this day, because, you know, I grew up watching nature shows. I grew up watching, you know, uh, Discovery Channel. And it, i got to tell you, it really, it's not very good. But there has never been a nature show about the world's deadliest snakes. They've never done it. They've never actually shown, they've never done a whole, like, uh, feature-length documentary about the world's dangerous, uh, most deadly snakes, the ones that kill the most people. And so we're going to talk about the, the deadliest snakes. And what it comes down to is um, we got we to really split this up and we got to establish criteria for how we determine what we really mean when we say deadly snake. And so we can, we can kind of define it three different ways. And one way is how toxic the venom is. So toxicity. And when, when you see those nature shows where the 10 deadliest snakes are all in Australia, they're talking about toxicity, the toxicity of the venom. Now, let, 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 me, let me stop you uh, sure. real quick, Sean. Um, so is there a difference? Uh, could you explain to our audience the difference between a venomous snake and something that's poisonous, because those terms are oftentimes used interchangeably. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. And you know, uh, snake people get really irritated about this because you know people say, "Is this poisonous?" And a lot of and a lot of snake people will kind of get uh, really kind of pedantic and go, "Oh, well, there's no such thing as a poisonous snake. They're all venomous." And what it really comes down to is like something that's poisonous is like if you ingest it and it causes harm, that's poison, right? So you can have poisonous plants. A salamander can be poisonous. You eat a newt, and it'll kill you, right? But if you don't consume a newt, you're fine. A newt's not going to come out and bite you and kill you, right? So a newt, 
a small salamander or a plant can be poisonous, but venom is actually injected into your system through some sort of you know mechanism, like a, a stinger, or in the case of venomous snakes, fangs, right? The specialized teeth that'll actually conduct venom into your tissues. It's a, it's a subtle difference, and it doesn't really matter to me. Like, if an 80-year-old grandmother comes up to me and says, I saw a poisonous snake in my backyard, I'm not going to correct them and go, look, lady, it's not poisonous. Technically Hold speaking, it right there. it's venomous. I have a question regarding this. So, so if I take a fang, right, 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 and if I eat it, so then what is, what does that happen? Honorbon so, just broke the fifth this, wall. This so, is good. So, Our minds are blown. This is good. This is good. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So venom, venom. If you were to take a shot glass of cobra venom and and drink it, it's a bad idea, and no one's ever actually done it. But you might be fine because a lot of the components of snake venom are simply proteins, very reactive enzymes and proteins that your stomach digestive juices could probably quickly incapacitate. But if you had like any kind of small like lining in your stomach, a little a little micro tear or like an ulcer, you might be doomed. So don't do it. But my guess is you could drink venom and it would be okay. Nobody out there should do that. Don't risk it. But that's the way it works. So you have your stomach is very protective. You can ingest some crazy stuff and your stomach will deactivate it if it's injected into your tissues. Or into your bloodstream, totally different. And that's the way venom is usually injected. So that's what it comes down to. It has to go to the bloodstream rather than... Not necessarily. It has to be... So it's just the mode of entry, right? So if you ingest a toxin or a poison that's kind of designed through evolution to be very toxic for ingestion, you're doomed. Right? There are plants that you can just take a little piece of and the plant doesn't want you to eat it. So just a little piece is like a concentrated dose of cyanide. It'll kill you dead, right, really fast. But at the same time, venom is, it has to be conducted into certain tissues. Now, usually what the snake wants is to inject it into, uh, like it's going to bite a mouse, and it's aiming with its fangs, and it's documented, it's aiming for the chest cavity. It's trying to get it into the heart of like a rat to kill it fast. If it's a defensive bite against you, it's not going to end up in your heart, right? No way, never. So it's going to end up in, not necessarily in your bloodstream, it's going to end up in the interstitial spaces between your tissues. And so you've got a much better chance, right? It's going to spread in weird ways that the venom is not really designed for. But that's kind of the difference between a poison, like poison and venom. And again, snake fans get really irritated about this. I don't. You know, if you say it's a poisonous snake, I know what you mean, right? Here's the thing that's going to blow you away. There is actually a snake that is venomous and poisonous. It's a, a, a small snake in Asia that has small rear fangs in the back of its mouth and can inject venom into its prey. And it's actually uh, been responsible, documented responsible for a human fatality. So it's, it's a, literally kind of a deadly snake. This snake feeds on toads. It's its primary prey. And it can actually sequester. It can take the toad toxins. And, it can, and, and the way it handles toads, which are poisonous, right, to ingest them is bad. It will take those toxins from the toads and pull them from the, basically their own bloodstream and package them away in these glands in the back of their neck. So that if something tries to attack them and grabs them and bites them by the back of the neck, these little capillaries, these little blood vessels in the back of their neck will rupture and the potential predator will get a mouthful of toad toxins. So wow. that snake is completely, like, quote, deadly, unquote, venomous and potentially deadly poisonous. How about that? Very cool. So, yeah. so what are some of the other ways we define deadly snakes? Yeah, so, so we just talked about toxicity. And when most people talk about uh, what, whether a snake is deadly or not, we're talking about, they're talking about how potent the venom is. The other criteria that you really should look at if you're talking about a deadly snake is whether it kills anybody or not or how many people it kills. And that's what's often ignored in the Discovery Channel shows. I'll give you a perfect example. 
the Discovery Channel shows, including Steve Irwin, go around saying that the deadliest snake on Earth is something called an inland taipan, or fierce snake, that's found in interior Australia. It's a cobra family snake, part of the alapid family, uh, and it has very toxic venom. You know how many people this snake has killed? Never. It's got no documented fatalities. No one has ever, as far as anyone knows, been killed by the world's deadliest snake. And that, to me, doesn't make any sense. So that's why we bring in this other criteria. So the inland taipan has really potent venom, but it's a very, it's straight up kind of a rare snake that not many people ever get to see. It goes through these crazy population fluctuations associated with uh, boom-bust cycles of the rodents they feed on. And it lives in the middle of nowhere in the outback of Australia where nobody else lives. The deadliest snake on Earth that kills the most people, and we're talking about tens of thousands of people a year, is something called a saw-scaled viper, as in to saw a log. It's a small viper that has these uh, rough scales that whenever it shifts its body around, the scales will actually rub against each other and it'll make a rattling sound. So it's kind of like a rattlesnake that doesn't have a rattle. It makes the same kind of sound, but it makes this kind of shh with its own scales. It lives from sub-Saharan Africa across the Middle East into the Indian subcontinent. So it lives in areas where there's millions of people who walk around with either no shoes on at all or just sandals. And apparently, if you step anywhere near this snake, it'll snap and bite you. Probably not too many hospitals uh, available. And, and in that's those another areas, huge yeah. part of it is that uh, antivenin treatment and treatment in general in these regions is not very good. So, it, you know, what makes this snake deadly is a combination of kind of biology and also socioeconomic factors, right? So, it kills tens of thousands of people a year. It and another species called the Russell's viper, which also occurs in the Indian subcontinent and then east into Southeast Asia, kind of trade places every year as the world's deadliest snake. And the number of people they kill is not insignificant. You know, you hear people talk about in Africa, the big five. Have you guys ever heard of the big five? The, the, the black mamba. No, it's not even snakes. It's not even snakes. When they talk about the the big five, they're talking about the the, the, the animals, hippos. right? We're talking about hippos. Oh yeah, Cape yeah. buffalo, lions, leopards, and I think the last one is uh, tyrannosaurus. Maybe, Rex. <laughs> probably tyrannosaurus should be, or maybe like it might be elephants or something. It's like they're all, or, or maybe crocs. Snakes and snakes kill more people than all of those combined in Africa. So snakes are the big five by themselves in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Like, and, and so I defend snakes a lot. I study snakes. And in the U.S., snakes are not a factor at all. They're among the lowest number of, of things. That, that, you know, they're below bee stings. They're below lightning strikes. I could go on and on. Um, but in the rest of the world, snakes are a significant medical concern. And, and as far as animals and how, how many people they kill. And the saw-scaled viper and the Russell's viper, tens of thousands. I mean, one of the things is kind of clear in U.S., it's not, of a fa it's not a major factor, I would think, is because of the socioeconomic reasons, because you can easily get to a hospital on time, right? So, and I assume if you had the same infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa, in certain parts of Indian subcontinent, you could get to the um, hospitals on time, and then... I would have to agree with you. I that think that's true. Well, you do, know, do we have snakes here in North America that, that even rival the, the toxicity of African snakes? Yeah, that, that's a good question, too. So they're both, both of you guys are right to point both of those things out because on one hand, you know, we, there are significant number, a number of bites every year in the U.S. Like venomous snakes envenomate something like six to 8,000 people a year. A lot of those are like co copperheads, though, that, you know, basically one, one or two fatalities ever, and both of those were probably due to extenuating circumstances. So we don't have particularly lethal snakes in the U.S. The venom isn't very toxic. So like category one, the first criteria we used, it's not very potent. On the other hand, also, we have pretty good medical facilities here. And that's also the reason why, you know, in Australia, 
they have very low numbers of fatalities because their their um, you know medical facilities are really good, and they actually have the capacity to administer first aid in Australia. The elapid snakes, the cobra family snakes, have a venom that kind of travels through tissues slightly different than pit viper venom, and pit vipers are our number one concern here in the U.S. And so they can actually uh, put a pressure bandage on a wound in Australia that will kind of immobilize the venom and give you longer. So even if you got bit by the most your toxic snake in the world, the inland taipan, you can apply first aid. You can't do that with a rattlesnake bite. There's no first aid. Uh, one point I wanted to bring up real quick, uh, America is kind of known as being big spenders. And uh, as far as anti-venom goes, I know it costs, like for us, around $2,000 a vial. But in order to cure it, it takes about 20 25 vials depending on the person, right? So you're talking about a $30 or $30,000 uh, price tag on that. And I would think that the uh, abundance in America would be far greater than probably some of the third world uh, areas, mainly because, you know, we're paying for that. Yeah. And I would think that we would have a, a lot more of an abundance in our area. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And yet, so in, in the U.S., you know, that you can... Your bill, if you if you were to go to the hospital for uh, a snake bite, could be absolutely outrageous. Now, your insurance company, if you're privileged enough to have insurance, uh, will cover a lot of that. But the copay, you know, you're going to pay. You're going to pay some, and it, it is very expensive. The production of that stuff is pretty expensive. Right now, uh, you know, herpetologists, people who study snakes and amphibians and reptiles have pointed out, we've actually kind of gone to bat for the fact that in developing nations, uh, antivenin production is really, really far behind. It's ludicrously so. Can you imagine if 20,000 people in the United States a year died of a snake bite? Like, right, people would be all over that. But, you know, in developing nations, there's no money in it. So it's, you know, it's crazy. So, so herpetologists have kind of, they've, they've had these big symposiums and they've, gone, they've, they've kind of shouted at the, at the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry and said, hey, this is, you know, we love snakes, right? We're the, or, but you, what you guys are doing is way worse, right? Because the snakes are just defending themselves, right? They got stepped on, somebody's hassled them, who knows? But the, the, the real vipers, right, are the people who work for these companies who won't even put in the time to, to, to make this affordable. And, and, and to me, that just, it's sickening. So I was just looking up as you were talking, which kind of uh, doing some research about the costs. And this is getting way out of topic from the, uh, about, so it turns out, as you said, like $2,000 here, the anti-venom. India, in India, it's 500 rupees. Which is around seven to eight dollars. Yeah. The anti venom. So that is not the so so there is a thing, it's very low cost. Yeah. But there are certain other issues I was like reading up, you can have an allergy later on to yeah, the yeah. same venom. So we can't really blame on that. Like the money doesn't come into yeah, in I, that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna claim so, to be an expert on so, how how the whole global medical system. Yeah. Works. So I'm, there's definitely said, like, some, yeah, there's yeah, some yeah, price gouging going on. Yeah. I always joke with people like if so, if you get bit by a, a diamondback in West Texas, I honestly think you might be better off driving down to Ohinaga to get treatment. Yeah. Number one, they probably see more snake bites down there than they see here in in Texas, and number two. I think you might walk out of there with your wallet, you know. I honestly, and I've, I've, I, I'm sure they would know how to treat you, and I, I'm also certain that their medical system is a little bit more, you know, equilibrated, where people are, yeah. They, so I bet in India there's a lot of subsidies that go I on. I would assume, yeah. like, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and the amount of bites in India that are, could be fatal are astronomical, right, compared yeah. to what we have here. You've so, got a lot more, you got a lot of dangerous snakes, and that, I guess I'll use that as a quick segue to our third criteria, which is something I call just dangerous snakes. So we got toxic snakes, we got snakes that kill a lot of people, which I consider deadly snakes. And the third category is this kind of real fuzzy boundary category of what I consider dangerous snakes. These are snakes that are large with a huge venom capacity, a pretty potent venom, that have a very efficient venom delivery system and they're not afraid to use it. 
right? These are snakes that are very defensive, that are, uh, you know, they might live with a lot of animals that try to come after them. So if they get cornered or if they get, if something gets in their face, they're going to strike. They're going to, what most people would refer to as aggressive snakes, which like I'm a firm believer there's no such thing as aggressive snakes. To me, aggression is where you actually cross the distance from yourself to an opponent, right? Like an, a grizzly bear can occasionally be aggressive, right? They'll actually come out of their way, right? If they're, if they're cub, if it's a mom with their cub and they see you come around a corner, they might just charge just to knock you down, right? That's aggressive. If you're standing your ground defending yourself, that's every animal on earth, right? Raccoons, ringtails. Go, go run into your backyard, try to grab a ringtail by its face and try to use a shovel to cut its tail off. See what happens. See Liber- what happens. Libertarians? Super <laughs> libertarians on the back porch. So this is, this is making yeah. me think rattlesnakes. Yeah. Would, would, would we classify? They, or well, would they stand their ground. So no, rattlesnakes, I don't think they're aggressive because they're, a rattlesnake is every bit as aggressive as a cardinal if you pick Card- up a cardinal are pretty aggressive if you pick up a cardinal <laughs> if you try to kill a cardinal with a shovel it's going to try to bite you a cardinal a bird a, a sparrow is aggressive so the, but there are some snakes that are and i don't know if there's any truly aggressive snakes but there's certainly some that if you get pretty close to them they're going to be really grumpy and w- the way i define this is what snake would you least want to be locked in a closet with so here's the thing. If you were locked in a closet with a rattlesnake, you could just stand on the other side of the closet and you'd be fine. I honestly think that. You could be locked in a closet with a sea snake and it would just flail about hoping it was going to be released back into the Caribbean reefs or wherever. It would be fine. Uh, and saw-scaled vipers, deadliest snake on earth, and they're more or less like a rattlesnake. If it was on the other side of that closet you'd be fine. Coral snake, fine. But a black mamba, you're dead. King cobra, a 16-footer, locked in the closet, that's a bad place to be. That's so that's kind of what I mean. That's kind of what I mean. It's, you'd want a bigger closet. Yeah, Whatever so closet really you were in, yeah. yes. you'd want <laughs> bigger. So that's kind of what I mean. And, and honestly, taipans, the, the, um, the, the, normal, the regular old coastal version of the taipan in Australia is, is kind of most people who have any experience on this have like they're basing this on experience from having one like in captivity. And I've seen captive king cobras, I've seen captive black mambas, and I wouldn't want to be locked in the closet with either one. I've seen people try to catch black mambas like in a zoo setting, and I saw their lives flashing before my eyes. And maybe I'll tell you guys this story. So, so I, I have a, a I have a, a question that you're going to appreciate, Sean. Once we come back from a from a quick uh, commercial break. Uh, but I, I have a feeling you're going to like this question. All right, everybody, we are back with the Science Nights continuing snake talk today. Take it away. All right, so um, I know a little bit about a snake that is near and dear to Dr. Graham's heart. Uh, so my question involves this snake, and, and there are a lot of misconceptions about this snake as far as I know. Um, coming from South Texas, I've seen this snake out in the wild a few times. Uh, what about the cottonmouth? Everyone always says cottonmouth will come after you. They are super aggressive. They will they will be out for blood. Question: Why cottonmouth? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> why cottonmouth? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So a lot of cottonmouth questions, and so yeah. So the cottonmouth is the North American snake that gets blamed for being aggressive, right? So in India and in Southeast Asia, it's the king cobra. In Africa, it's the black mamba. There's an Australian, a couple of Australian species that supposedly chase you, come after you. And in North America, the cottonmouth is it. The way, the reason why it's called a cottonmouth, they've got, when, when they're threatened, they don't have a rattle. They're related to rattlesnakes. They're pit vipers. But uh, when they're threatened, they'll actually pop their mouth wide open in this gaping behavior. They'll gape their mouth. And it's kind of this fleshy, kind of whitish pink color, mm. the inside of their mouth. And that's why they're called a cottonmouth. So instead of a rattlesnake's rattle, they pop their mouth wide open if they're threatened. And and the message is pretty clear, right? If you come anywhere near me, I'll bite you. 
So it's a warning. It's kind of cool. So it's interesting. Rattlesnakes lately have gotten a lot of uh, kind of credit for their warning, right? The rattle. They're considered noble. Like Benjamin Franklin wrote about how noble they were, that they warned their enemies. But the cottonmouth gets no credit, and it's got a warning too. And it's mostly because this kind of misconception that's out there among swampers in the southeast, mostly swampers who go to like, you know, big industrial lakes for power boating, right? They go and see generally non-venomous water snakes and, and see their behavior, and they blame cottonmouths for everything. Cottonmouths are blamed for chasing people, coming out of their way to attack people, dropping into people's boats, and being the most aggressive snakes in the world in general. And none of those things are true. I studied cottonmouths for eight years from my master's and my PhD research. I've caught about 3,000 of them, and I've never seen any aggressive behavior. Uh, and actually, there's published research on exactly what they do. They, uh, you know, something like 30% of the time, if you walk up on a cottonmouth, the first thing they try to do is crawl in the other direction. I've seen that a million times. I've stepped on six cottonmouths. I wrote it down in my notebook when I would do it. And never did they actually try to bite my boot. They were just trying to struggle to get out from underneath my foot. So even when you step on them, the researchers who studied this put on snake-proof boots and actually approached cottonmouths. So they went through this kind of scenario. They walked up on them, approached them, wrote down what happened, then they would step on them, and then they would pick them up with a phony arm, with like a mechanical hand, and the arm actually had these like little heat balloons to give off like human body temperature. They, they tried to simulate a real experience. And even when you picked up the snake with the phony arm, only about 10%, 25% of the time would they actually bite the arm. When I would handle cottonmouths, there definitely seemed to be this kind of threshold where if you mess with them enough, they would get angry and decide to bite. And when I would handle them, it wouldn't be with a mechanical arm. It would be with three-foot-long salad tongs, steel tongs. That's how I'd collect them. And when I, would, when I would approach them, they would try to get away. I would walk up on them. Sometimes they'd pop their mouth open. They'd rattle their tail. They're not rattlesnakes. They'd try to get away. And then I would catch them. And it would usually be after like a solid like 20 seconds of handling them with these steel tongs that they would finally go, okay, all bets are off. And they'd turn around, and I could actually feel them biting the tongs because their tiny little fangs would hit those tongs. I could feel that kind of weird tingling in the three-foot tongs that I was holding. Never would they actually come after me. So this is like, it's a classic urban legend. You know, somebody will tell you, yeah, I got chased by a cottonmouth, and they're like, and you're like, did, you, did it really happen to you? And they'll be like, no, it happened to my uncle. And then you go ask their uncle, oh, no, it happened to my cousin. It's just, it's like four parts removed. It's always, I am certain it's never happened to anybody. They're not aggressive. They're defensive. They will defend themselves. They will bite, and they will bite your dog if your dog messes with them, and that's, you know, a tragedy. But they're not aggressive. They're just defensive. And if anybody tells you, oh, by God, I've seen them do it. They dropped into my boat. The ones that are dropping into their boats are probably water snakes. Non-venomous water snakes will actually bask up in the lower branches of small trees hanging over rivers and lakes. And cottonmouths don't do that very often. Actually, I actually published a paper about that, where of all those observations of cottonmouths that I saw in the field, I had about 800 observations where I wrote down where I saw cottonmouths, and about two of them... Two out of 800, less than 1%, were actually perched up in the branches of trees. And all the rest of them were laying on the ground on the log. They were, they, they're heavy-bodied snakes. They can't climb that well. Non-venomous water snakes can climb very well, and they love to hang out in trees. And they'll bite. And they will bite, too. Absolutely. They're yeah. grumpy. They yeah, as, as a kid, we kind of had this all-encompassing term for cottonmouths and water snakes. We called them... Water moccasins. Yeah, water moccasins. And, and, you know, it didn't help help things watching uh, Lonesome Dove or reading Lonesome oh, Dove. Oh, yeah, when classic. Kid gets gets killed yeah. by the water moccasin. Yes. Yeah. I could list the urban legends. Yeah, the, the, that scene from Lonesome Dove did so much harm to, to cottonmouths everywhere. And that's like, that's like set in like the, some river in Texas where there aren't even any cottonmouths. And, um, and it's, yeah, the, there's a great urban legend. Uh, the, 
so have you guys ever heard this one? It's so there was these kids playing in the in the uh, bu- the little bubbles, the little uh, balls at a McDonald's. You know? Oh, I think I've heard this. Yep. One. Yeah, and the, the, ball the pit. kids are down there in the ball pit and they're playing, and and then all of a sudden they start screaming and hollering, and and the parents go and get them out, and they're like wondering why they're screaming, and they start smacking their kids. Shut up! Why are you crying? They get them home and they realize there are these little fang marks all over them, the double fang marks. And they went back and they looked in the bottom of the ball pit and it was a nest of cotton mouths. Yeah, utter, like the, the razor blades and Halloween yeah, candy. Yeah, utter. It's the razor blades. And it's it's the tarantulas in the in in the cactus. It's it's <laughs> it's everything you've heard. The black uh, mamba in the closet. <laughs> I was gonna say it's most like if I, if I see like a double fang, I would think it's a vampire. Yeah, that's what you probably it's probably more likely yeah. it's a vampire, honestly, because yeah. it ain't a venomous snake. Um, so, um, which is very interesting. This uh, brings me back to that saw scale viper you're talking about, right? But since I'm from India, right? Even though I've never seen a like a king cobra, but that's the reputation. Nobody thinks of the saw scale viper at all. Like moment you think the sub Indian subcontinent, the first snake is uh, King Cobra, but and King Cobra is extremely defensive, so it's not going to bite you. It's going to give you warnings, multiple warnings before you. That's true. Uh, so it's telling you to back away. Yeah. Every, so, everything I read about the King Cobra, and I've got no personal firsthand experience with King Cobra, and there are very few papers written about King Cobra. So this is all kind of conjecture here. But everything I hear about the king cobra makes me think their reputation is a lot like a cottonmouth, right? They will, and I have heard from firsthand, you know, uh, people who have seen them, they will get up and hood up, yeah. right? They, the hood of a king cobra is not like, when you're thinking of a, of a cobra with a hood, with that crazy kind of uh, clover-shaped thing mm-hmm. on the back, that's the typical Indian cobra, right? That's the one you see the dudes with the flutes with, right? That's not the king cobra. The king cobra... It's huge. It's the world's largest venomous snake. It's, it mm-hmm. can be 16 feet long. And the, the hood is not very well developed. But if you mess with them, it will. And that snake's so big that when they do hood up, what we call hood up, it's at eye level with a human being. It's, it's right looking right because square to your head. Because one third head. of but the that, body, yeah, one third of the right. body, if you look at 15 feet, yeah, it's right you look there. at five feet right there. Like it's, it's right there. And uh, what I read... Like what I know, like a little bit, it's basically then if you're hooding up and something that's five feet up, you don't want to freak it out. Exactly. If, if you freak it out, it's going to come after to you. To me, like so, the two the two really kind of scary snakes that seem to be really equipped with defending themselves to the maximum live in the areas of the world where there's a ton of potential predators that could potentially mess with them, including large birds that kind of specialize on eating snakes and it's mostly birds that are eating snakes that are killing snakes but then big things like leopards tigers lions right so the black mamba co-occurs with birds that want to kill snakes all the time plus big mammals that are scary lions leopards in india you got you also historically there were lions and there's still lions in some places and tigers and leopards also so these are big snakes that can potentially kill any of those things if they need to right but also, they threaten them. So if you're picturing a king cobra hooding up at eye level with you and thinking that would be scary, imagine what would go through a tiger's head when that happened. Because that probably would happen. If a tiger came across a king cobra, it would lunge itself up and, and get at eye level with a tiger. Mm-hmm. And the tiger would probably go, I got better options somewhere else and just take off. And, and that's the idea. And that's why I think they're all bluff. Even the world's, like the scariest snakes that you wouldn't want to lock, be locked in a closet with, they, there's this interesting kind of communication that goes on in nature between predators and prey and predators and other predators. There's a lot of communication. And, and, and the message is never misunderstood. If a, if a big cobra gets in your face with that hood and looks you right in the eye and you're a tiger the world's most equipped predator, right? Way better than a king cobra. Tiger can kill a water buffalo. Tiger backs down. That's the idea. And another thing about king cobra, it's everybody, I mean, yeah, it's like kind of very um, fearsome reputation and stuff. Uh, 
the thing about king cobras is like they're they're pretty rare. You don't see them that often. Like as you were talking about your friend's uncle and there, I do not know anybody who has seen a king cobra in the wild. Yeah, firsthand experience. And yeah. I'm not talking about my generation. I'm talking about my grandfather's generation, yeah. where the forests were much like we had a lot more wow. natural vegetation. I have not heard a single time somebody telling me yeah. a king cobra That's came up to me and. But I've heard like people talking about pythons. Yeah. So pythons were are common. So, yeah, but yeah. not king cobras. Yeah. They're rare. They are. They are. So uh, that's interesting. And yeah, that's you know I've only got I've only heard one one story uh, from anybody who's remotely uh, genuine or could be believed that sounded interesting to me like a, a king cobra story that maybe I'm buying. And, and you're probably familiar with this guy. This guy Jim Corbett. Who uh, was a you know when when India was you know occupied by the English, this guy was like the big uh, man-eating tiger hunter. If there's a man-eating tiger on the loose, they would call this guy because he had more experience than anybody. And his his book, The Man-Eaters of Coman, is an incredible book. Got and it's a great storyteller. He talks about a cobra, that, a king cobra that comes around a corner and comes at him, and I think he blows it away with like an elephant gun. Something crazy like yeah, that. Overkill. And it, yeah, it's it's kind of overkill, but and I also think it might not be the the observation may not have been what he thought it was. The the cobra could have been just on its way somewhere and it just happened to be on his path. And of course, I might have the same response. You see King Cobra coming towards you and you have an elephant gun, right? And you're a hunter. What are you going to do, right? So, yeah. Um, uh, um, one thing I do want to, we should talk about, like every time, this is very, um, talk about Jim Corbett when he said that, we should mention, he's not just a hunter. He's one of the biggest advocates for conservation. Yeah. So yeah. He, There's a national park named after him, him still to this day they, in India. And yeah. He's not just this white yeah. man going and hunting. Great white yeah, hunter. Yeah, right, yeah, he's not that. He's a oh. huge yeah, conservationist. He, awesome. And he used to go after man-eaters. He did not yeah, just yeah. go and hunt. He didn't hunt, just do it no, to get the skin. skin. He these these man-eating tigers killed hundreds of people yeah, in India. So, and it was like a public service. Yeah, that he, that's, yeah. so this is a totally yeah. different. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah, to, yeah, it's a good, good point that yeah, out. Yeah, just want to clear that point out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, speaking of, of cobras, I've got to chime in here with my, my uh, paleontology info. Uh, so cobras, or at least the family that they belong to, the Elapidae, They've been around for a long, long time, millions of years. I think the oldest uh, lapid specimen that we know of is like 25 million years old. So uh, a tiger, full-grown Bengal tiger is like a pussycat compared to some of the large predatory mammals that were living 25 million years ago, 10 million years ago. Um, and I wonder if, if some of these spectacular adaptations like the hood and the incredible size that we see in the king cobra um, is a result of so many millions of years of, of evolution. That's interesting. Yeah, that, so you, I do kind of think about that. They've got all these adaptations. You know, when you think about coral snakes and their red, white, and black, or red, yellow, and black color patterns, um, and, and that's supposed to be a warning coloration, right? And there's, there's mimicry involved where there's non-venomous snakes, that have taken on the same color patterns. And this seems to be, you know, it, it helps them because uh, potentially other species do not mess with the uh, mimics because they're confused for coral snakes. And you wonder how long that kind of thing would take. And coral snakes have only been in um, the Western Hemisphere. You said, you said 25 million years 25 ago for million, the first yeah. elapid? Mm -hmm. And is that, what, what period is that? Because I'm terrible with numbers. Miocene. But I, so that's Miocene. So, uh, okay. So the, the first coral snakes and the first pit vipers arrived in North America, probably from Asia, across a land bridge. The same land bridge up in, in Asia, North America, the Beringia, right? Mm -hmm. Where the Native Americans came across, but much earlier, right? The Native Americans haven't been here for 25 million years. Uh, but a little later than 25 million years, uh, that's when the first cobras, the cobra family, and pit vipers got to North America. And they've been evolving like crazy. And, and th those crazy color patterns of a coral snake and the mimicry involved, you'd think that would take a very long time. But like from a geological standpoint, the Miocene 
Would you consider that a really long time ago or pretty early? That's pretty early, pretty recent, geologically yeah. speaking. Yeah. It's nothing like dinosaurs. I mean, no. Now, snakes did live with dinosaurs, too. That's another interesting thing. The, fir- the first snakes come, uh, our, our earliest evidence of snakes come from the Cretaceous, mm-hmm. uh, and dinos were still around. So the, how about that? Think about that. That's pretty cool. Like what, and they, they, they wouldn't have been venomous, because uh, apparently the first elapid, not till the Miocene, so dinosaurs have been long extinct. But still, the, the idea that snakes could have been kind of slithering underfoot while T-Rex was around is pretty cool. And that would and the first snake fossil, as far as I know, the earliest is in North America. So it would have lived at least close yeah. by Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. That's that's one of the things I always cross my fingers I may find out in Big Bend one of these days is a snake skeleton. A snake skeleton in the belly of a Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would a, be a, a snake better. nesting with a Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, a Cretaceous water moccasin uh, nest inside of a T-Rex. Yeah. But the the main like the the diverse like the the diversification of a lot of the venomous snakes the the cobra family and the pit viper seems to be really closely tied to the diversification of rodents. And you always hear this from people like, "Oh, you know, people who are good PR people who 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 want to support snakes and think they're, they're oh well snakes are good for killing your rodents and that you know from an evolutionary perspective that seems to be the case like pit vipers that that they get the name from that heat sensing pit that's between their eye and their nostril and that really seems to be an adaptation for them to be able to detect small warm blooded prey you know and and they can really target them using that that organ it's the most sophisticated heat sensory organ. Among vertebrates, among any animal. And that co-occurs with the radiation of grasses, too, right? There you go. Yeah, so grasslands, that's Miocene, right? Kind of the first gra- grasslands really start to, the, over the last couple of 50 million years, is this kind of steady drying, some grasses, grasslands, rodents, and the pit vipers in the lapids all at the same time. They're all kind of evolving together, what we call co-evolution. Um, and so, yeah, the pit vipers really seem to blow up and they're kind of tracking the progress of the evolution of lots of rodents, which are still kind of really prized prey items out there in the prairies to this day. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. And uh, I'm sure all of you guys are inspiring some uh, young scientist, you know, would-be scientists there in the future uh, out there right now. Um, I do have a question after the break that involves a little Greek mythology for you. But uh, first, we're going to break off, take a quick commercial break from our sponsors, and we will be right back. All right, we are back with the Science Nights. And uh, before the break, I was talking about uh, proposing a question uh, to our experts here uh, about the uh, Greek mythological gorgon, Medusa, and her stone-like stare. So... um, Basically, my question is, how does that relate to snakes? Do snakes really hypnotize their prey? Do they really uh, make them kind of freeze in their tracks in order to, uh, you know, get their meal for the day? Yeah, this this is a great, great thought. It's a cool thing to explore. And I kind of brought this on myself when I talked about a king cobra staring you right at the eye, right? So the first part of this is um, it's really obvious or kind of, understandable to think that like uh the ancients would have thought the snakes could hypnotize their prey or hypnotize anything the way they act a lot of the a lot of the snakes like cobras some of our snakes in north america have eyes that are kind of forward on their heads and looking out the same way our eyes are they have uh you know stereoscopic vision They've got eyes in the front of their head to where they've got overlapping images, which gives them depth perception. And, and snakes seem to be key, they, they key in on eyes. They really do. I'll give you an example. One of our local snakes, uh, the coach whips. These are the big pink snakes you see crawling across the road in the early spring. Uh, and they look like big pink cobras. They act a lot like cobras, but they're totally harmless. They don't have venom. And their relatives... If you pick them up, they're, they're grumpy snakes. They're mean, and they will strike at you. They'll try to bite you. And a lot of times they'll aim for your face, and they'll aim for your eyes. That's pretty interesting. They, they seem to know about eyes. 
They'll look you right in the eye. Snakes don't like to be looked at in general. They hate being looked at. Snakes are very shy creatures. They hate being looked at. Like if you if you deal with snakes in captivity, a lot of snakes are so they're so timid that you kind of have to hide yourself from them in order to feed them. You got to kind of put your little mouse that you're about to feed them on on the end of a pair of tongs, like a pair of forceps, and kind of a lot of a lot of like sneak keepers will hide themselves under a black sheet so that the snake doesn't see them looking at them because they hate people looking at them. They're really associated with the eyes. Now, as far as whether or not snakes hypnotize, like Medusa, the Gorgon, this goes way back. This idea probably goes to antiquity. It was probably imported to North America from Europe, from the earliest settlers. And John James Audubon actually wrote about this because... They found like timber rattlesnakes with like mockingbirds in their belly or squirrels. And they thought, how in the world could this fat, slow snake get a, f- a flying animal, right? Ever. Or a-, a squirrel, you know, the most acrobatic thing you can think of. It turns out they can get either of those two things as a prey item because they're sneaky and they're ambush predators, they hide. And they're impossible to see when they're in the leaves at the bottom of a forest floor. And they're sitting there parked next to a log. They're invisible. And so, and they can strike very quickly. So if a mockingbird were to kind of run along a log looking for a caterpillar to eat, and it doesn't know the thing is there, then it can get nailed by a timber rattlesnake. Or it can get a squirrel that way too. But, of course, John James Audubon didn't know this. He He never knew that they could do that. So he just assumed... And many people, well, he didn't, but many people assumed that somehow they lured them with their eyes, that they could hypnotize them and draw them in. And that's how they got such crazy prey items. But even John James Audubon thought that was no way. Okay, so since we're, we're uh, uh, kind of nearing the end of the show here, um, I have kind of a two-part question for you. This is something that our, our listeners are probably curious about. Uh, the first question is, uh, since we live out here in West Texas, it's obvious a lot of people who live in Alpine have probably seen a rattlesnake um, in their backyard, maybe. Uh, the first question is, how do we avoid encountering snakes that might bite us? Okay, we now know that they're not aggressive animals, but they will defend themselves. The second question is, if we are unlucky enough to, to be bitten by a snake, what do we do? Great, 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 great. Yeah, so avoiding snakes is, is actually pretty easy. You know, I, I study the snakes in the area, and I've never had to, like, go out of my way to avoid them. I go looking for them, and, I, you know, I've heard people finding them in their backyards and that sort of thing. I guess here's my advice. If you were to find one on your property, you've got all the tools you need to uh, remove that snake safely. A big rubber trash can and a broom. That's all you need. You can just sweep it into a trash can and then dump it at the edge of your property and it'll it'll be totally safe. You don't need the tongs that I need. And then the second thing, if you were uh, unlucky enough to get bit, I got to tell you, I got to warn you against first aid. There is no first aid. There's no suction cups. There's no tourniquets. None of that stuff works. I promise. You mean mean John Wayne was just (laughs) completely wrong? John Wayne, great actor. Not a snake biologist, but John Wayne, you know, good guy. But so go to the hospital. John Wayne would love that. Like, let me tell you, just go to the hospital. That's really kind of the way John Wayne, John Wayne, it's straightforward. It's common sense. Go to the hospital. If you're, we live in an area of the country that's very remote, not very many hospitals around. So you might have to call in an ambulance and, you know, we got ambulances, so call 911, call poison control. They will get everything organized and get to the Alpine Hospital. They'll take care of you. So you're telling me Edgar Rice was wrong? Edgar Ed- Rice? And Tar- Tarzan was wrong? <laughs> I mean, so I, I really grew I thought I could bite myself and get the snake venom out and spit it out. Hair, hair of the dog that bit you, I guess. You bite yourself. <laughs> so, so funny you enough. might be able to bite yourself. <laughs> you, Otterman, you might be able to bite yourself. That could work. <laughs> 
but nobody else. Nobody yeah. else. If if you if you go to to Walmart or Academy or any of these these sporting goods stores, they still sell. Right. Sell yeah, yeah. The suction thing kits. is crazy because there was actually an MD wrote this paper. You're gonna love the title of this paper. They looked into it whether or not the suction mechanism could work. They actually found it may do more harm than good because <laughs> if you do that suction, it can open up capillary beds. Right, kind of cause a bruise, okay. and that could actually make the venom spread quicker. So they caught the title of the paper was "The Suction Devices Don't Work; They Just Suck," and that was in a medical journal. That was the That's name great. of the paper. Yeah, I think they a lot don't of people work. like bleed to death too by trying to cut themselves. Yeah, don't cut yourself. Yeah, there's a classic story about somebody who got bit. They come into the hospital. They got a purple arm, and they're like, "I got bit by a venomous snake." And they tied a tourniquet. So they undo the tourniquet. They had to loot. They had to cut the arm off. They lost the arm. The arm was dead, and it was a king snake. So they got bit by a non-venomous snake, and then tied that tourniquet, and that's why they lost the arm because it cut off all the circulation, and it was just for a non-venomous snake. So don't tie a tourniquet. Do not tie a tourniquet. It will not work. The venom will proceed past the tourniquet. Because the venom is not going through vessels. Pit viper venom works through the lymphatic ducts and the tissues. It can get through all that stuff. Uh, so quickly bringing in, uh, so when you're talking about, so let's say since we're in Alpine, right? Then there's a pretty remote area. And uh, so we, there's a snake on your property. So since it's remote, so when you say at the edge of your property, do you mean the edge of the town? Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, like, that's what I did. I, I found a rattlesnake in downtown Alpine. Yeah. And there might be some witnesses out there who saw this. I jumped out of my truck. I used a big dip net because that's all I had to, to scoop it up off the ground, toss it in the bed of my truck. And the people who saw me go, go look what he just did. And then I drove to the edge of town in Alpine. I drove to the edge of town and I dropped it off out okay. in the grasslands. Not not in your neighbor's property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's uh, <laughs> some good advice there, Dr. Graham. Um, um, I, I guess it's, it's good to, to stay calm, too, because you, calm. you don't want a bunch of blood pumping through your veins. No. Um, all right, I think that's, that's our time for today. Uh, we thank you for tuning in to the Science Nights. Uh, join us next week. We'll be talking about exoplanets with Dr. Anurban Bhattacharjee. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.